Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. My co-host today is Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU, WTIU. We're talking with our guests about iLearn, the testing results that have just come out by the state of Indiana. We have uh, three guests with us who are joining us today. Erica Washington is a reporter with Chalkbeat Indiana. Dr. Mark K. Winston is the MCCSC Assistant Superintendent of Curriculum and Instruction. And Jennifer Smith Margraf is the Vice President of the Indiana State Teachers Association. You can follow us on Twitter today at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. And you can also send us your questions by email to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, thank you all for joining with us today. It's a big topic. And we're going to start, I'm going to start by having Erica Washington, a reporter from Chalkbeat, Indiana, talk about uh, your reporting on the results and, and what, what you learned, sort of set the stage for us with an overview. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. So what I've seen with iLearn this year is, well, as expected, um, educators um, and officials expected there to be a decline due to COVID. So that's what we've seen um, during uh, the 2021 administrative, I mean, during this time. Um, so last year in 2019, that was the first year, I'm sorry, not last year, 2019 was two years ago. Uh, 2019 was the last time that students took the iLearn assessment. It was also the first time that they took the island assessment. Um, and what educators noticed was during that time that they were really low, low scores on the first time this test was taken. Um, and then you had the pandemic in 2020. Um, and so students didn't take the test then. So this is the second time students are taking 20, um, the iLearn assessment. And what we've seen are dismal um, results. Um, so the first year of iLearn in 2019, 37% of Indiana students passed both e ELA, English, and math tests. This year, just under 29% did. In the largest school district in the state, Indianapolis Public Schools, which is the district that uh, I cover mostly, um, only 10% of students passed both English and math, um, which is similar to a few other Indianapolis school districts like Warren Township which 8% of uh, students pass both English and math. In Wayne Township, um, which just under 11% pass English and math. Um, and so along with that general uh, picture right there, um, we've also seen um, some disparities with our special demographics of students. So um, with race and ethnicity, um, specifically, I'll highlight that um, Black students, um, only 8% of Black students in Indiana passed both tests. Last time this test was given, 14.8% um, passed both tests. Um, when it comes to um, the way we measure poverty, um, free or reduced lunch, um, in 2019, 22-23% of those who received free or reduced lunch passed in 2019, this time uh, 15%. And then we also um, see, you know, lower scores um, with special students who have special needs and students who are English learners. 
Um, so right now, the Department of Ed, they are saying that this year should not be, we cannot compare the scores this year to 2019 because of the so many disruptions with COVID. Um, but it's still helpful to see the difference between 2021 and 2019. Um, and so they're saying that 2021 is the baseline. They're using 2021 as the baseline for future years. Um, and, um, and then now right now, the Department of Education, they are now conducting an academic study um, that will show that will um, show how much this this COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the students in Indiana. Okay, well, Erica, we'll get back to a lot of the specifics uh, and unpack more of those, those uh, details that you've given us. I want to bring in um, Dr. Mark K. Winston from the MCCSC. So when you look at, uh, Erica talked about, you know, IPS, the Indianapolis Public Schools. What did you learn from this testing with the MCCSC? What can you give us an overview? Well, thank you for having having me here today. I, I think that uh, we, Miss Washington hit a lot of the highlights of, of what we've seen as well. And we knew that this was going to be a challenging year because of the disruption in learning, because of moving from hybrid to in-person to online only. We anticipated that there would be some discrepancies in, in student learning. We were not excited about the fact that we were going to be required to administer state tests for all of the reasons that we know. Um, in all of the ways in which the pandemic has exacerbated uh, the different challenges that and the inequities that already exist across this country. But what we are taking from that is looking at this information, um, looking at it as one metric in a, at a point in time, and really trying to be more forward-looking, looking forward in terms of what are we doing going forward? How are we making sure that we are accelerating learning opportunities for each and every child within our school corporation? How are we extending those learning opportunities by tutoring, by after school, um, but mostly strengthening what we're doing during the course of the school day. Our teachers worked so hard, our students worked so hard, and our families worked hard as well. We're really trying to figure out what did we learn from the past 16, 18 months, and how do we apply that in terms of how we strengthen the kinds of learning experiences that we're providing for our children. That's how we're taking this information and moving forward. Okay, I wanna get into some of those details uh, as well. But first, Jennifer uh, Smith-Margraf from the ISTA. You, you have a, a broad view of this from the state level. Um, you know, I, I listened to, you know, our first two speakers and, you know, we're, we're not supposed to be comparing these to a couple of years ago. Um, Dr. Winston just said they weren't very excited about even administering the tests in MCCSC. Was it really a, what value was it to have these tests and have these test results now? And, you know, where, where do we go from here? Well, thank you very much for having me on today, and I'm happy to be here with our other two guests. So I think what the tests have shown us and what we have learned from them is that there were discrepancies before we went into the pandemic. So no one yet has talked about the fact that all the districts across the state were approaching this using different modalities based on where they were. So if you are in Marion County, which is a high density population area, and there's easy transmission of a virus like this COVID-19, you're gonna have to be at home in a situation where you are socially distanced from each other or not able to participate in in-person school the way our buildings are set up. Where if you're out in more rural districts where you have that ability to not be in such a high density area and transmit the virus as easily, at least in the situation we were in last year, that it showed that using those different modalities influenced the amount of material that teachers were able to work on with the students in their classroom. And it also showed quite clearly the areas that did not have affordable, high quality internet, which is an issue that we had been talking about across the state, but clearly came into focus in terms of um, being able to administer school, being able to administer these tests, 
and make sure that students were able to participate in those things and the need for devices because the districts who have been getting more money under the school funding formula had those devices in the hands of students or were able to get them more quickly than some of the districts that have not been doing so well in the funding formula and have not been able to provide those things. And so I think it's brought into clear focus for us, the disparities among our districts and where we need to be focused in state terms of statewide policy to make sure we even that playing field going forward. I just want to ask a quick follow up from Mark Kay. Um, you were sort of talking about the path forward. I'm just wondering from your perspective, how much stock is MCCSC putting in the, the results of the iLearn? That's an excellent question. We recognize them for exactly what they are, one, one moment in time. Our strategy and our focus is really on making sure that our students understand and can demonstrate skills as it relates to the Indiana academic standards. And so that's our, that's our bigger focus. Our, our focus has been on prioritizing the essential learnings that our kids need to know and understand and prior to the pandemic, that's the work that we were doing. And post pandemic or through the end of this pandemic, hopefully the end of this pandemic, that's what we're gonna focus on as well. In terms of how much stock specifically we're putting into it, well, we can't ignore it. We have to pay attention to it, but we also need to, to pay attention to it and, and give it its appropriate place in what we know our students understand. I think that Ms. Smith spoke very clearly about the discrepancies and the different types of modalities and access to resources that children across this state and across the country and certainly within our community have experienced. And so we're not comparing apples to apples. Uh, we're comparing apples to oranges to peaches to nectarines. And that's how we're taking a stock of the data that's been presented to us. And at the end of the day, how, how are our students for um, performing against the academic standards. And that's what our teachers are going to continue to focus on going forward. Can you be specific about how you're going to do that? And uh, I, I guess I also want to ask about, um, so this is kind of two parts. So I want you to be a little specific about some of the programs that you might put into place and some of the assistance you might put into place for students and faculty members. Well, let's just go with that first. Oh, okay. Is that uh, towards for, me? For you, Marque. Yes. Yes. So one, one, one specific program, we're in the, uh, the first week of what we call our Jumpstart program. And our Jumpstart program is specifically designed for kindergarten, first and second grade students who were who probably most significantly impacted by the disruption in learning opportunities during the last school year and a half. And the, our Jumpstart program is designed to get those students ready for the new school year. So we're providing intensive academic support and instruction in reading and math in seven of our elementary schools for two weeks prior to the opening of the school year. So that's just one way that we're extending our learning opportunities. So several students have been identified through the principals and through the teachers as being in need of additional supports. So we're bringing those students in, we're working with them one-on-one -on -one and in small groups and really trying to make sure that when school starts uh, in a couple of weeks, that, that we, we have truly given them a, a, a jump start um, in, in the, their preparation for the new school year. So that's one example. During the school year, uh, as part of our recovery grant funding that we received, we're partnering with the Indiana University School of Education, and we are looking at some additional extended learning opportunities during the school day, as well as after the school day, where we will provide some station learning experiences, really intensive um, from a STEAM perspective, looking at um, accelerating learning, learning for children. We've worked really hard to identify who are the children who have been struggling academically because of the pandemic. And we are going to target those children in particular to make sure that we are providing additional supports for them. On the flip side, we have children who have continued to excel and we want to make sure that those students are afforded opportunities um, for more enrichment as well. So we're trying to hit both ends of the spectrum in, in terms of what our students needs are 
and we're doing it in some creative different ways. Those are just a couple of the examples of programs that we're implementing over the next uh, couple of school years. Okay, and then if I can follow up on that, and then maybe Erica wants to jump in. Erica talked about some of the discrepancies that were there before um, COVID, and they showed up again in this these iLearn testing results. The seven elementary schools that you've chosen, are those all Title I schools, or some of them are? For the Jumpstart program, yes, yes we are providing... Um, the Jumpstart program, it's going to be located in each of the Title I schools, and students from any school, certainly, that's been identified to be able to participate, but we are providing the services in each of the Title I schools. Okay, and the, the Title I schools include the more the more low, lower income, the, the more um, free and reduced lunch schools? Is that that right? is correct, okay. yes. Got you. So, Erica, when, when you... Uh, you pointed out these discrepancies. What what can IPS do about it, or what what uh, kind of programs is IPS putting into place? Yes. Um, so IPS, there are a few things. I'm actually working on a story about um, what uh, some of the Indianapolis school districts are doing. Um, and so I did talk to um, IPS about that um, in general. So what they said, some of the things that they're doing is that um, they are going to have high dosage tutoring. Um, So they're going to do more tutoring. um, And they're also going to have, they're going to have a partnership with the Center for Transformative Teacher Training in the University of Virginia um, to help teachers when it comes to supporting students. Um, And a few other things um, that I'm looking into IPS. Um, I just got off the phone with another superintendent um, in Indianapolis, Perry Township, and um, that superintendent said that they are going to hire more um, interventionists. And uh, another school district superintendent I talked to also said that they're hiring more interventionists as well. So um, some school districts are looking towards hiring more staff to support students in small groups and one-on-ones. Also, in Indianapolis, in the, in Marion County, um, there was um, this new summer program that launched, um, and this new summer program was called Summer Learning Labs. It was launched by the Mind Trust and United Way of Central Indiana, and for about four thousand students in Indianapolis, mostly IPS students, but also students from other town uh, townships and school districts, participated in a summer learning labs. And so, basically, the whole goal of this program was to catch students up before they entered into their uh, 21-22 school year. And um, so, that's something else that the city that um, the city is doing to um, help students get up to speed. Um, new summer programs, more hiring more interventionists, um, more professional development for teachers and things of that sort. So how, how are these programs being paid for? Is this through the American resource money? With the summer learning labs, they received the recovery grant. Mm-hmm. So that's how that is paid for. Um, when it comes to the school districts, what the school districts are actually uh, implementing, that's a lot of them are using the ESSER grant, um, the ESSER funds to mm-hmm. pay for um, additional staffing and, and, and things of that sort. In okay. Okay. Um, Jennifer uh, Smith Margraf from ISTA. So teachers are going to have, uh, it sounds like teachers are going to get some more resources to help them um, with, you know, the work that they do. How does the ISTA feel about that? I mean, are they going to be fairly compensated for any additional work that they do? I mean, how are they going to build in this additional training with the already busy classroom work that they do? Well, that is certainly a concern. I'm sure that you have seen over the last 18 months, uh, many messages from educators across the board who are feeling very burned out 
from all of the extra work that they were doing during the pandemic in order to make sure that they were reaching all of their students and families and trying to keep um, their students moving forward as best they could in whatever modality they were working in. Um, we had many educators across the state who were teaching all day in their classroom and then would spend many hours in the evening working with students online who were either quarantined or they were doing double duty because those were students who had to stay home given their health conditions. And so we are concerned going forward that we want to make sure that our expectations certainly are high for our students, but they are reasonable in terms of staff because if we continue to burn staff out, they will simply leave and we're already in a shortage, especially when we're looking for um, teachers in many areas. Um, bus drivers as well is another one where we're very short on people. And so we want to make sure that we put in place high quality programming that it does move our students forward at a faster rate, but does it in such a way that our educators don't burn out and also that our students don't burn out as well. We wanna make sure that they stay on track to be enjoying school all the way through so that they will stay on track to graduation. And so that's, that's one of the things that we are, are looking at. And we also are hoping that some of those American Rescue Funds and the funds that are coming from the state will really focus on doing different things that will reduce class size. We know that the fastest way to move students forward is to make sure that they are getting quality one-on-one -on -one attention with a teacher or with a para who has been well-trained, who is able to implement one of those programs. And so we're really hoping that we can get that extra support in the classroom so that all of those students are getting that one-on-one -on -one attention and getting it in such a way that it really helps move them forward from wherever they are. Because our students across the state are going to be in very different starting positions in this particular school year. All right, Sarah yeah. Whitmire has a question, but first let me give our, our uh, contact information in case you want to ask a question. We're on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us your questions there. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Sarah? Jennifer, how do you think that the expectations for teachers and students in the upcoming school year are going to be affected by the results of the ILEARN? Well, that's really going to vary across the state because um, Erica has spoken to what the test scores are in um, Marion County to some extent. Um, Superintendent Winston has talked about what it looks like in Monroe County, but it really, even though there's a 29% average statewide, it really varies quite a bit across the state because it really depends what modality uh, the students were in, so whether they were face-to-face -face for most of the year, whether they were online most of the year, whether they did a hybrid, whether they had to go back and forth. And it also depends to what level of outbreak there was in their county, how much things got disrupted in terms of being in and out. And that also varies pretty widely across the state, even when you're talking about some of our rural areas. And so the programs that people are, are looking to put in place really need to be tailored to what their student population looks like. And so we've gotten this data, and I know that the DOE is wanting to go down several le levels um, and really give each district their own personalized set of data so that those administrators, those staffs can work through, um, through their discussion process, through their bargaining process, through the other processes that we have in place to really work with their educators to design programs that meet the needs of their students and really push them forward and make sure that we have that happening across the board so that our high ability students are moving, that our special education students are getting what they need, that our ELL students are getting the services that they need, and that anyone who is in an area of identified achievement gaps, um, specifically our black and brown students, that they are getting the resources that they need. Um, because the test scores really did highlight that we have gaps in those areas. And it isn't just in terms of schools, it's in terms of the resources they have to make schooling as possible, as easy, as enriching, as deep as it is in areas that are more predominantly white. I think that, you know, in the MCCSC, there's, there been, there's been lots of discussion about some of these gaps and some of these disparities. I think if you look at the numbers for this year, the one school, one elementary school that actually improved 
in the combined English language uh, arts and math passing rate was Child's Elementary School, which has the lowest percentage of students getting free and reduced price lunches. Those students, uh, Dr. Winston, obviously would would need a different approach than than maybe some of the other elementary school students. So how do you how do you do this? How do, you don't have it's not a one size fits all issue for these different schools. So how do you go about designing a program that's going to suit everybody? Thank you for highlighting that. You, you know, and you're right, it's certainly not a one size fits all. Our approach is really looking at the data and figuring out how do we utilize the data to, to move our numbers. We're And we do that. We're a school district that, you know, adheres to professional learning communities. And that's when teachers are looking at student data, they're looking at student learning, and we work very closely with our teachers and they work amongst one another to figure out what are the instructional strategies that are gonna be the most impactful for the student populations that they serve. So some of the strategies that might be employed at Child's Elementary may look different than the strategies that might be employed at a Highland Park Elementary School um, based upon the unique needs. And what I really appreciated um, about our colleague from the ISTA, she, she really highlighted the fact that regardless of whether you're a student with a disability, whether you're an a, a English language learner, whether you're a student who's gifted, we wanna make sure that we're providing individualized learning plans based upon the unique needs of those students. And we are not looking at a cookie cutter approach, but there may be some aspects of what we wanna standardize across all schools, but then giving our teachers and our principals uh, enough autonomy to be able to design intervention approaches and, and, and acceleration approaches that are responsive to the, to the student population that they serve. That's how we're tackling that. Okay, are, are you aware of how much um, additional funding you might get at MCCSC, and if so, what what do you plan to do with it? So we're taking a pretty um, diverse approach to how we're looking at our the, the additional funds. And so, yes, through the Recovery Act, through the ESSER dollars, we are certainly looking at technology. So there are some technology enhancement projects that are underway. We want to make sure that our students and our teachers have the technology that's necessary. So that's been a, a pretty big investment. We're certainly looking at staffing. Where are there some opportunities where we can add some additional staff? Being sensitive to the fact that this is short-term money, so we want to we want to be thoughtful and, and reflective about how we go in, you know, about doing that. We're looking at different types of intervention programs that we might be purchasing. We're looking at professional development opportunities for our teaching staff. Um, for our building administrators, for our paraprofessionals. We're partnering with several different community partners and agencies, such as the Boys and Girls Club. We, as we envision extended, extending learning opportunities for our students, we're also looking at breaks, fall break, uh, Thanksgiving break, the winter break, spring break. And are there some ways that we can provide some mentoring, some tutoring um, and enrichment experiences when we're out of school? So we're looking at those kinds of partnerships. Our partnership with the Indiana University College of Education or School of Education is such that we're going to be working with some of our professors there and their students to provide some really intensive high dosage tutoring that we that Miss um, Washington was also speaking about. So we're we're utilizing our dollars in a lot of creative ways. We have had a very significant effort in looking at. Um, culturally responsive instruction and practices and what that looks like. We are just about to complete a three-part summer series on how do you do that coming through a pandemic. And so some of our dollars are being utilized to to help strengthen our skill set in that area as well. And of course, summer programming. We are looking at extending our summer programming instead of maybe four weeks, maybe six to eight weeks. We're looking at some creative things at the high school level that will really accelerate college and career readiness preparation for our students. And so as we think about and as we looked at different ways to utilize the funding that's available to us, we want to make sure that we leave no stone unturned um, and, and, and addressing anything that's going to help us accelerate learning for all of our children. And we're focusing on it, not from a remediation standpoint, because we don't believe we can remediate ourselves out of this. We really believe very strongly that 
in order for our students to get the kinds of academic gains that are necessary, that we want to accelerate them a year to a year and a half um, in terms of their learning. And so that's how we are utilizing the dollars that are available to us, as well as some other additional strategies that are out there. So I have to ask this question, and, and I guess Erica, I can ask you to try to answer it first, but but maybe uh, either Jennifer or Marque can answer it too. Early on in this process, you know, it was uh, people were using the term learning loss. And as I understand it, that's really not a term that anybody wants to be using now. Can you explain, you know, what it is that we saw during COVID? If it wasn't learning loss, what what was it? What What is the term that we should be using and and why is it better than learning loss? You know, that's a really, really good question. I think um, a lot of educators will say that, well, it's more or less like students haven't, it's kind of like a stagnant kind of thing. They haven't been uh, learning at the same pace that they used to learn, um, not really a loss. So that's actually a really good question. Um, I often think about that myself. Like, what could we say that, what what is a better term to use other than loss? Um, and that's something that we've been talking about at Chalkbeat. I think that it's important to, to realize that, uh, that students have been all over the state, um, have been learning in different ways. Um, in different time periods during the past year and a half. Um, and so it's been challenging uh, for all of them, um, specifically those who are marginalized. So that is a good question. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to pass it over to Marque and Jennifer on that one. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'll jump in here. And I, I agree that we haven't come up with a good term to describe this, but I think why educators really dislike the term learning loss is it makes it sound like somebody did something wrong and it's aimed pretty particularly at that group of students and it comes across to many people like that group of students did something wrong but we were in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that we haven't seen since 1917 and 1918 that caused disruptions that none of us I think ever contemplated having to live through and so I think Pat Mapes from Perry Township he's the superintendent there is the one I've heard describe it the best is that they haven't lost something, it just hasn't been presented to them yet. And when we get an opportunity to present it to them, they are going to be able to learn to do that, which is what we have proven over time. So what our job is, is to figure out how do we get that material presented to them now as we go forward. We need to know what it is they haven't learned so that we can get into that mode of making sure that it does get presented to them. All right. So, yeah, go ahead, Marquette. Agree. I, I think that terminology uh, learning loss is a myth and, a, and it's a misnomer. And so I, I absolutely agree. And yet I think we're all grappling with, well, what is the proper terminology to use? So when, it, when everything happened, I think people began to use the term learning loss because they didn't know what else to say. But our children didn't receive, they didn't, they haven't lost learning. They've, they've lost instructional time. They've lost, they've had an interruption in their learning. And so the, the focal point really needs to be on what's our go forward strategy and, and how do we um, address, address the learning that, that didn't happen. And I think that's really, that's really the, what our biggest challenge is, is that we need to discontinue using the word learning loss. It's kind of an easy term to, to kind of capture, you know, catch on to, but I hope we can stop using that because it, it is a misrepresentation of what our children experienced during this past year and a half. But I don't, have, I don't have a better replacement term yet. <laughs> Erica, could you drill down a bit more on the performance gap between students of color and then students from low-income families compared to wealthier students? Because the gap was really, um, was really large. I mean, from what I remember, 8% of Black students passed both the English and math. Um, compared to about 35% of white students? Yes, yes, yes. The, the gaps was um, were um, very stark um, and dismal. Um, so yes, we've seen significant gaps um, 
persist among all Indiana's uh, racially and ethnically diverse, low income, special education and English language learner students. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done uh, when it comes to those students who are, are typically marginalized. Um, like I said, in, in Indiana, only eight percent of black students in Indiana passed the test. And last time it wasn't um, that high um, e anyway, and, and now it's only dropped. Um, I think what is also significant to point out, um, and this isn't um, connected to race particularly, but I think it could be, is that um, there were significant um, drops in math and um, with um, early learn or younger students. And so I talked to this um, testing expert, his name is Andrew Ho from Harvard, and him and other educational researchers have predicted that there'll be larger drops in math and reading, which test scores also show, and um, also connected to race and ethnicity, we've seen uh, the, the black students particularly, uh, and also Latino students as well, like have larger drops in math than other um, racial, um, ethnic, like age, white and Asian students. Um, but Andrew Hull, he said that um, the larger drops in math and in reading, he attributes that to accessibility of reading at home. Um, reading, because reading is something you can do at home. Um, it's harder to talk to math. You, people don't usually talk about math over dinner or, you know, go over math problems, right? And so, um, and you typically need more teacher help um, interventions in math. Um, and so I thought that was interesting because I, I never thought about it that way. And 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 um, when it comes to math, you have more interventions in, in you know, curriculum, um, specifically on the concepts on math. And so that's, the reasoning behind a greater drop in math. And then also with um, the younger students, they're learning how to read. You know, when we see more significant drops in, 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 in with younger students, it's like they're learning these concepts, they're learning how to read. Um, whereas when you have older students, they can, they can, they're more able to read on their own. Um, and, and, and they have the computers where they're able to do more work independently. So that's why we're seeing more drops with younger students and uh, larger drops in math. And um, unfortunately, uh, there's this quote, I don't, I can't remember who said it, but they said when the country gets sick, when people, how is this? I, I think somebody might know this, but when uh, the country gets sick, black people and other people of color get pneumonia. So anything that happens to the general public, you're going to see larger significant drops with people who have been historically oppressed. Uh, so all these drops, you're going to see that even more so with um, marginalized students. In, in your reporting, Erica, I mean, what, it, what are some ways that schools are looking to support these vulnerable families and students as we approach the start of a, the next school year? That is an excellent question, Sarah. And I am actually in the process of really digging into that those questions um, myself with superintendents. Right now, they seem to be very busy, but I'm getting them on the phone. I've, um, I've already talked to two, and I'm about to talk to a few more this upcoming week before school starts. Well, for some school districts, it starts this upcoming week, and then um, I know IPS starts August 2nd. So I'm talking to superintendents right now, officials right now, about what are they doing to help the most marginalized students? What are they doing to make sure that students can, you know, get their thinking caps on? That's my teacher talk right there. I used to be a teacher. But, you know, get the thinking caps back on, learning um, mostly full-time uh, in person in the classroom and, and just, yeah, doing better than you know, what we've experienced these past 16 months. So that's something that I'm working on. Should have mentioned that Erica used to be a teacher. That would, that would have been a relevant thing to point out. Um, I want to, I have a couple more questions, but I want to give our contact information again 
at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there and news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can send us questions there. We have about a little more than 10 minutes to go in the program. We've had one question come in and it is, I think I'll ask Jennifer to address this first. How do we talk to young students about what has happened this year? How do we protect them from worrying about the test scores that they've had to take and maybe read headlines about? That's an excellent question. And I think Dr. Jenner did a very good job in terms of starting off the last State Board of Ed meeting where these scores were presented by saying, this is not an indictment of anyone because of the situation we were in in the last year. It's information to show us where we are in each place. And it's our obligation to make sure that we take that information, learn from it, and make sure that we move everyone forward from where they are to get where they need to be. And I I do think that if it is important for us to look at the data, but I do worry, and I am not the only one, that if we focus so much on the deficits and where people have lost, and my God, you've got to catch up, we are going to take students who are already stressed because they have been through the most difficult 18 months of their young lives, right? And they don't have as much perspective as those of us who are older to know, okay, we've been through this traumatic event, but things are going to move into what I hope is a new normal where we address some of these discrepancies that we've talked about. Um, Erica is right. The saying is when America catches a cold or when white America catches a cold, black American gets pneumonia, that, that we address that, right? But We wanna do it in such a way that we don't exacerbate the trauma that they've been under. And we wanna make sure that we help them through those feelings that they have and say to them, look, you really can do this and we are going to put supports in place to help you get there. And we are going to stay in this with you until you do get there, whether that takes more than a year or not, but that we really are committed to making this happen. And so I think we do have to be honest with students, but we need to make sure that we put supports around them so that they feel loved and supported and can focus on what they need to do instead of worrying about all these things that they have potentially lost, because all that does is take the time that they have now and instead of having them focused on the present and the future, it has them stuck in the past. If I can interject. Yeah, go ahead. Sure, no, go right ahead. I, I, I so appreciate those comments because in some ways, when we when we use the terminology learn, learning loss, it's kind of like blaming blaming our children. And I think what is so essential is that we support our students through this trauma. This has been traumatic for our children. This has been traumatic for adults. And some of the things that I, I think are going to be necessary, more importantly, quite frankly, than the academics is helping to restore the mental health of all of our children. And what I mean by that is helping them to to rebound from the trauma of not having school and having schools interrupted. We know that there's been a heightened degree of anxiety and depression in, in some of our children. And so I think in a responsible way, we've got to provide wraparound supports, mental health services, social work services, and how do we teach some of our students who really haven't had a real uh, school experience in a couple of years and who our youngest children who have not had school experiences, we've got to teach them how to do school again. And so a lot of our opening um, school efforts have to be around welcoming our children back into school, helping them understand, you know, how we interact with one another, the, the mental health component, the social emotional learning experiences. And we've got to help our students feel um, confident. We've got to help them regain the confidence. And we've got to make sure that we're, we're building student efficacy. But at the same time, we're building teacher efficacy. Our teachers really grappled with not being able to deliver the quality of instruction that they're accustomed to doing. And so I do think one of the things that we've got to focus on is how do we make sure that we work with our teachers so that they feel impactful and that they don't, they, they don't take this data to heart to say what they didn't do as teachers, because that's not what this is about in any way, shape, or form. It's really about how do we move forward and how do we, how do we heal all of us together and how do we create the kind of school culture and climate that's going to be conducive to the type of learning experiences that our children deserve. That's really got to be the biggest number one focus of what we do as we, as we open school. 
You know, I hear all three of you talk and it um, makes me uh, kind of hopeful because it sounds like you're, you're all saying, let's look at this as an opportunity. You know, we have, we have some data, whether it's good data or bad data, but it's showed us that there have been some discrepancies, some, some real problems in our school corporations that, or some, some, let's see some gaps. I won't say problems. We'll say gaps that we need to address. Do you see this as a time when we might be able to sort of regroup and uh, come out of this better than we went into it? Dr. Winston? I absolutely do. I purposely try very hard not to even use the term uh, gaps, uh, learning gaps or things like that. I try to look at it as opportunities. And so how do we address the, the opportunities that are there? And so I think it's about creating new we none of us want to return to what used to be before the pandemic because we know that what used to be wasn't working either so it's about creating new experiences new opportunities and new learning paradigms that are going to be responsive to the children that are in front of us and so i'm very hopeful very optimistic and i i i'm excited quite frankly about the opportunities that are going to be in front of us to really probably for the first time in a very very long time to really do right by every child that we serve, uh, not just the majority of the children, but all of the children, children who look like me, how are we gonna do right by those children uh, as well as every other child that's in our schools? And so that's the opportunity that's in front of us. And this is, it's gonna be incumbent upon us to, to grab that and, and really you know, put our money where our mouths are in terms of um, what, what are the actions that we're going to take? What kinds of innovative programs are we going to utilize? How are we going to monitor the impact and the effectiveness of those programs? And when they're not effective, are we making the changes? And how are we going to respond to make sure that every child, regardless of income, regardless of zip code, gets the kind of support that they need? That's the opportunity, and that's what's exciting about what we can do going forward. There was a Washington Post article that was talking about current standardized test results and also um, the fact that Biden is not a proponent of standardized testing. And it had a conclusion that said this could be the beginning of the end of America's use of these uh, high-stakes standardized tests. I'm just um, curious your response to that, Jennifer. So that gets into a really big topic, but I do think that there's potential for that to happen. And I, I understand why we need data. And frankly, we in education use data all the time. We use all kinds of both what we call formative assessments to get a sense of where students are, where they, where they are still lacking in knowledge before they take what we call summative assessments, which are the ones that count for grades or are say these standardized tests. But what we have been seeing is that these tests have been used many times for the wrong reasons to punish people to do different things that many people across the field of education and many parents have not felt are appropriate uses and in seeing how we have changed the standards over and over again and seeing um, the effects that when we're spending all this time testing we're not actually using that time for instruction which we can see right now we need every moment we possibly can to be instructing these students to make sure that we are getting them to the place that they need to be i think that that is a, a conversation that we would like to have in great depth that is not to say that there are not concerns about making sure that we have uh, things in place to make sure that all students are meeting the levels that they need to meet, right? Um, I know that people in um, our uh, communities of color um, are very concerned that if we get rid of standardized testing, that's a way to then not focus on those students and say, well, everybody's doing fine when we know that there are some differences in learning that is happening. But what we're seeing measured by these tests is that it's lack of internet access. It's lack of the uh, access to lots of different things, right? Medical care, um, quality tutoring, um, Many of these students are on free and reduced lunch. There are all kinds of gaps that it has exposed that we really need to be focusing on, including the gaps in education. And so I was nodding vigorously to what Superintendent Winston was saying because 
we can't go back to what normal was before. I do hope we get back to what I'm gonna call a new normal in which we're able to be social and be out with people, but we have an opportunity right now to see where these gaps in services to different communities are, and we have a responsibility to make sure that we even that playing field among people. Every student should have the same access to internet, to education, to high quality food, to high quality medical care, all across the state, no matter what zip code they live in. And so that's what we're gonna be focused on coming out of this. And we want to make sure that our time and our effort and our resources are invested in those things and even, evening that playing field. So we only have two minutes to go in the program. So I'm gonna give each about 45 seconds to wrap up. Uh, what's the message that you hope education officials will take from you know, our discussion today and you know, these test scores? Dr. Winston? Hope, opportunity that we can do this. We are absolutely cut out to provide high quality learning experiences for every one of our children. And we need to not um, be confused that our children didn't learn this past school year. They learned a lot. They learned a lot about life. They learned a lot about health um, and they learned academically as well. But at the end of the day, it's about hope and opportunity. And we absolutely have the skill set and we control the conditions of our schools and we can in fact accelerate learning. All right, Erica Washington. Um, I think that educators um, and school officials um, have to start thinking creatively, and I think some of them are, which is great. And I also think that one thing that hasn't been discussed is social-emotional learning and the emphasis that I see many school districts putting on social-emotional learning and making sure that their teachers and students are mentally and emotionally okay. So I think that's a big emphasis um, this school year. All right, Jennifer, last, uh, you get the last word. So I agree with all that they have said and also all of your listeners, you have your own personal sphere of influence and you have seen through these last 18 months where there have been gaps. So I know where there are gaps in education between communities, but if you're out there and you work in the medical field or you work um, in terms of law or wherever it is that you have your sphere of influence, you have seen those gaps you have the ability within that sphere to make things better for that group of students in that area. And we all access those things. So my challenge to all of you is we're gonna work in our sphere of influence which is education to make these things better. I hope all of you will work in your spheres of influence to make them better for all of our future citizens across the state. All right, thank you very much. That was Jennifer Smith Margraf from the ISTA. We've also been joined by Dr. Mark A. Winston from the MCCSC and Erica Washington, a reporter with Chalkbeat. For co-host Sarah Whitmire, producers Kathy Knapp, Benton Boutier, and our engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. This has been Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.